Today we're going to learn about the progression of the lowly Christian walk. To walk worthy of the calling, it begins way down here, as we're going to learn. There's only one thing, there's one sin that will debilitate you from being able to walk worthy. There's one vice. I want to read just a paragraph from a classic book. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves of. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this particular vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. That's out of Mere Christianity, written by C.S. Lewis, as he wrote about pride. Pride will kill Christ being magnified in you and through you. There is no strength in inner man if one's given himself to pride. Now as a Christian, think about this. As a Christian, you've been justified, sanctified, and one day, what's our hope? We will be what? Glorified. Amen. Justified. We've been studying that. We've been studying the position you have in Christ. You're free from all blame. You stand righteous in the sight of God positionally. So to be justified means that you are freed from the penalty of sin. Freed from the penalty. Consequence of sin is death and eternal separation from God to be cast into outer darkness where there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. You've been freed from that penalty in Christ. You've also been freed... In sanctification, because the moment that you believe, you are also sanctified. And you're constantly, continually being sanctified, which means to be set apart unto holiness. So in justification, you've been freed from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, you've been freed from the power of sin. The only power that sin has over you, believer, is that which you allow it to have. Period. You've been freed from the penalty of sin and justification. You've been freed from the power of sin and sanctification. And one day when you are glorified, when you step into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be freed from the very presence of sin. Because in heaven, there is no death, right? The consequence of sin is death. There is no death, therefore there is no sin. You've been freed from that. That's the promise. That's the hope that we have in Christ. And because of all of that truth, because of all of that theological knowledge, because of all of that grand doctrine of salvation, we're simply called to walk worthy. It's a gift. We're called to walk worthy. We're called to act our age, right? I said last week, you don't look at a teenager who's acting like they're eight. When they are acting like they're 8 and they're 15, what do you say? You say, act your age, right? People are get, who associate themselves with organizations or things of that nature, they say, hey, walk proud, like if you're a Marine, right? Once a Marine, always a Marine, right? Stand up, you're a what? You're a Marine, act like a Marine. 
As Christians, we're called to walk out that which we are. We're called to live out who we are. That's what walking worthy is. Walking worthy, you guys, it all begins on the inside. You can fake it, but that's all it is. It's a joke. It's a fake. It's a fraud. We're called to work out, walk out that which you are in Christ. We've learned that walking worthy is to live your life in a manner that matches your what? Position in Christ. Your position is flawless perfection because the righteousness of Christ has been placed upon your account. That's called imputed righteousness. We're simply called to walk in a manner that matches our position in Christ. We're called to simply walk out what you are. Be who you are is what Paul's encouraging us to be. So it's walking worthy is far more than what we do. Because we get caught up into this mindset of I gotta do, I gotta do, I gotta do, I gotta do to be, right? No. We're working from being. We're working from what we are. You don't work for salvation, you work from it. That's why we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Work out that which Christ has already worked in. So it's much more than what you do. It's a matter of what you are. The one thing that will infect walking out what you are is pride. Pride. Pride is an ugly sin. And as we read, it's easy to see on other people. It's very difficult to see in yourself, you know? Amen. You know, I've been in these scriptures for weeks, and they're pounding my head, and, man, you just see pride all through your life. It's just kind of interwoven, man, within the sin nature side of us. Within the sinful side of us. It's just woven within everywhere. And you're like, man. Like Isaiah, you know, saw the Lord high, saw the Lord high and lifted up. He said, oh my goodness, I am a man that is undone. Woe is me, I am undone. Amen? Let me shine that light. So what we're going to see here in verses 2 and 3 is this progressive stride. A progressive stride that begins low. To walk it out. To walk worthy of the calling begins with a low walk, which we're going to come to understand today. And there's five characteristics that make up this lowly walk. Number one is lowliness itself. Number two is meekness. Number three is long-suffering. Number four is forbearance. And then finally, unity. Unity. Now, the five characteristics are going to lead to this sevenfold unity, this sevenfold oneness. Seven in the Bible is the number of what? Perfection. This sevenfold perfect oneness that these five characteristics all lead to. And it's this progression. They're all tied together almost as synonyms. There's just slight differences. They're tied together very synonymous. Now, as a Christian, we've been raised from the pit of sin. Raised from death, right? Evil. Evil. We have a room full of very evil, wicked people. Saved by grace. Made righteous. High and lifted up. Exalted to the heavenlies. Gifted with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. That's who you are in Christ. That's who we are today. And we rejoice over that. That's why we gather together. Amen? That's why we are here. Rejoicing over what he's done. All of this truth about what Christ has done for us should and must do a work in us that is responsive to walk in humility. To walk in humility. 
you know, humility is that grace that can be kind of misleading, right? Because as soon as you think that you have it, you probably lost it. Right? But there's many who don't realize they have it, but they do have it. I was meeting with a group of men that I meet with here every um, Saturday morning for leadership development and things like that, and we are actually talking about someone that we, at least half of us in the group, know about, and we've had a relationship with this man over the years, and when we thought of a man who walks in humility, we thought of this man. And one of the guys in the group said, you know what, because of who he is and the way he walks and lives out his life, we're here blowing the trumpet for him. We're tooting his horn. And the reason is because we've never seen that man toot his own horn. He's a man who walks in humility, very Christ-like characters in and through this man's life. So here we are, sitting at a table, the 12 of us, tooting the man's horn because his life certainly glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, mark this down. Matthew 11, verse 29. Jesus said this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, Jesus set the standard, guys. The God who came out of glory, majesty, lowered himself to become a human being. Flesh and blood he took on. And lived the perfect life in your place. And because we abide in him, 1 John 2.6, you can mark this, 1 John 2.6 says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Just as he walked. But we live, in a, we live in a culture that, what does it do? What does it do with pride? It exalts pride. Our, in America, America is pathetic. Consumerism to the max. Take, 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 take. Get, 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 right? It's all about me. Pride. Exalted. And then it's promoted in our culture. It's promoted. Pride simply is the exaltation of self. The culture looks down on humility as a weakness. And because of it, you know where the church again is crippled and leadership is crippled? Is that it allows the mindset of the world now into the church. And then you get these crazy teachings like, hey, you're not claiming God's blessing on your life. You need to claim that for your life. You need to claim that Mercedes for your life. You need to claim that house on the hill for your life. You need to have your feet in the sand and a drink in the hand, right? You deserve it. And then the church, I was watching just the other night, it was like, it was a couple, right? And they, they pan up close on this couple from some church, I don't know where it's at. It says, yo, Bishop Lawrence taught us, he taught us to begin to claim God's blessings on our life, and today we're driving and they named off some big, super fancy car. It's made its way into the church. But it's the lowly walk. Pride will kill it. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes shame. Proverbs 16.5, everyone proud in heart it is abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. Proverbs 16.18, pride, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 21.4, a haughty look, a proud heart, and the lamp of the wicked are sin. A lamp referring to eyes. You can see pride sometimes in people, can't you? Look in the mirror sometimes. <laughs> Speaking of myself. First thing, you know what it was? 
Pride. Lucifer, the most beautiful created being ever created by God. You know what he said? You can read this on your own. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And read it later. These are the five by wills of Satan. I will ascend. I will exalt my throne. I will also sit on the mount of congregation. I will ascend above the heights. I will be like the most high. I will be like God. Right? Five by wills. God's response, one, no, you won't. Right? One, no, you won't. Cast out of heaven. Hell was created for Satan and his what? Followers. One third of the heavenly realm of angels, however many that is, chose to follow him in rebellion. Those are the forces that we fight against, unseen forces of evil, unseen forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. As a Christian, they have no power over you except for the power you allow them to have in your life. They can stand on the sideline of your life and they go, I got a shortcut. I can make you look good. I can make you feel good. We're called to resist the devil. Simply. Stand and what? Resist. Two things, stand and resist him. And he will what? He'll flee. But the world, they're caught by him. They're in bondage to sin. The only one that can free them is the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That is it. That is it. Pride. As a Christian, and you walk around in pride, it grieves the one who indwells us, the Holy Spirit. It grieves him. And we must kill it. You know, we oftentimes we begin to compare ourselves with one another, right? You can look really good next to someone who doesn't look so good, can't you? It's easy to do. And we have a tendency in our humanness to do that. If you want to compare yourself with anybody, you know who you compare yourself to? How about the Lord Jesus Christ? Compare yourself to Him. You'll come up short every day. And you'll cry out for more of His grace in every day. He'll pour it upon you when you repent. And He'll lift you up in it. He'll hold you up in you. And He'll walk it out through you. You see? Humility. Open up to Isaiah and we're going to see a gross illustration of pride. Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3. Now we looked at chapter 2 and we saw the haughtiness of man. When, the, when God comes down in wrath and he comes down in judgment. There's no place for a man to go but to go crawl under a rock. Did you see that in chapter 2? There's only one place to go. In 586 B.C., we see the fall of Jerusalem. It fell a few times. And that's the context that we're in here. Look at verse 8. Chapter 3, the people will be oppressed, everyone by another, and everyone by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder, and the base toward the honorable. Total disrespectful society right there. Verse 8, for Jerusalem stumbled, and Judah has fallen because of their tongue and their doings. All are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. The look on their countenance witnesses against them. They declare their sin as Sodom. They boast in their sin. They were boastful in what they were doing. No shame. No hiding it. Outward rebellion. They don't hide it. Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Verse 11. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given him. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. 
Verse 16. Moreover, the Lord says, because of the daughters of Zion, because they're haughty and walk with outstretched necks. It's that outstretched prideful look, right? They have wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. They have little bells and little chains on their anklets, and they had to take little short steps to make the noise with those chains or bracelets, you see. So it was kind of this little flaunty swagger. That's what he's, that's what he's illustrating. A cocky swagger, a strutful walk. A little kind of a, a proud bombing of the head, you know? Verse 17, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover the secret parts. Verse 18, and in that day the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments and the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms and the rings, the nose jewels, the festal apparel and the mantles, the outer garments, the purses, the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans and the robes, and so it shall be. Instead of a sweet smell, there'll be a stench. Instead of a sash, a robe. Instead of a well-set hair, baldness. Instead of rich robe, a girding sackcloth. In branding, instead of beauty, your men shall fall by the sword. Crushed. Crushed. Pride. That's what it led to in Jerusalem. That's what Isaiah saw. That's what Isaiah forewarned them of. They were crushed because of their pride, you see. Crushed. Pride is sin. You know why? Because it competes with, guess who? God. Pride competes with God, always. It's a competition with God. Because everything... This ought to bring glory through our lives. When we hinder that, it means we're walking in pride. We are in direct competition with God. Direct competition. That leads us to our study. Okay? That leads us to our study. Okay, look at this. Chapter 4, verse 2. We know that we're called to walk worthy of the calling here in Ephesians 4. Verse 2, with all lowliness... Now, everything we're going to get to, these are all inner attitudes, guys. Inner attitudes. You know, you can go to church, you can read the Bible, you can lead Bible studies, you can talk about Jesus to people, and you know, those things are great, but it's all external. You can do that in your own strength, you can do that out of the flesh, but it's all external. Those things are good in and of themselves, but many times it can be just an outward appearance. You can say hallelujah and amen all day on Sunday, and it's all outward. It's all outward. When it is the product of an inward reality, God is glorified, you see. God is glorified. Because he knows the heart. He knows the condition of our heart. So it's this inward reality that flows to the outward manifestation of those things that bring glory to God. All of these things, as, as we've studied, are impossible unless the inner man is strengthened, which we looked at in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And again, if you don't have, if you didn't hear that, I encourage you to get the CD, and all of this just gets together. The inner man must be strengthened. The inner man must be the focus of our growth in Christ. And it begins with a lowly walk, which leads to this, guys, unity. Unity of the body, because we're individual body parts, and we make up the whole. And when each one of us is strengthening the inner man and we're walking out God's grace in and through our life and we're walking in lowliness or humility, 
God's glorified through our lives, and we are able to operate as one, you see. We're able to operate in unity, and that's the goal, unity. Unity of the Spirit. Jesus said in John 13 but that loving one another proves to the world that we're his. Remember that? In John 17, Jesus said by the unity of the church, it will manifest the supernatural character of our leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. It manifests his glory. Pastor John MacArthur comments on this. When the church is fragmented, when it's not operating as one, he says this, and I quote, When there is discord, disharmony, non-functioning members, and a low level of commitment, the body appears crippled, thus showing the world a crippled Christ. End quote. That's how the world sees the church oftentimes, amen? When we begin to focus on the inner man, to do the things and live out the characteristics that we're going to study today, we're able to be one. God's glorified. The world sees the church as she is to be, operating as one. That leads to lowliness. Verse chapter 2. With all lowliness. This is modesty and humiliation of the mind. Okay? Modesty and humiliation that begins right here in your thinking. It's an inner thing. James 4.10, you can mark this down. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Humble means to depress, to humiliate in condition of the heart. Humiliate the condition of our heart, you see? It's a mindset. Romans 12, verse 3, listen to this. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Do not set your minds on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own eyes. It's easy to appear wise in your own eyes, isn't it? It is. It really is. So to think soberly to means, means to be of sound mind. It means to be sane in your thinking about yourself. Moderate as to, to uh, passion, opinion. Because you know what, ministry? Everybody's replaceable. Did you know that? Everyone's replaceable. If you think because you serve in this one area within the body of Christ and you're all that, uh, believe me, you are replaceable. I am replaceable. Everyone in any role of ministry is replaceable. God can say easily, I've got more where that came from, you know? i got more where that came from. It's his work through us, you see. Lowliness, humility, putting Christ first, others second, and ourselves what? Last. That's humility of the mind. That's what he's talking about. This progression of power begins with lowliness. Humility of yourself. Humility within yourself. It's also accepting yourselves as you are. Check this out. God's created you. He's given you gifts. He wants you to operate within those gifts according to his power. But many times people are so self-conscious of themselves that they cripple themselves from being all that God has created them to be, you see. And then there's almost this false sense of humility. Oh, I can't do that. I just know I can't do that. Well, you know, you've equipped it. You've gone to four years of Bible college, and uh, you're definitely gifted in this area. God, I think, has probably paved the way for you here. Oh, no, I couldn't do that. So it could either be laziness or just this low self-esteem, right? This false sense of humility, perhaps. 
got to be balanced, right? It's a matter of accepting ourselves as God's created us to be, and it's a matter of accepting His grace in the gifts that He's imparted to us. Amen? Begins with the mind. Lowliness. Humility. Now, humility, which begins on the inside, it leads to our next characteristic. Characteristic number two, look at it. What is it? Meekness or gentleness. Gentleness is meekness. The inner attitude of lowliness manifests itself outwardly in meekness. You see? In meekness. Meekness is a quiet, willing, yielded submission to God. It doesn't rebel, revenge, or retaliate when, it's, when, when you're wronged. Perfect example, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning verse 23, you can mark this down. Jesus, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. See, the world defines meekness as being weak or timid. But you know what meekness is? You can sum it up like this. Weak, meekness is power under control. It's a, it's a word used for a, for a soothing medicine, for a soft wind, or a broken colt. Is wind powerful? You can look at Katrina. You can see that wind is powerful. It can be powerful. Medicine can soothe or heal people of a certain infection or, 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 or some illness or sickness. Amen? But you take too much, what happens? You could die. You can look at a wild Mustang running about the hills of Wyoming or wherever they run. They're powerful, right? They're powerful. You get trampled underneath them, you are dead. The stallion, the Mustang running wild is useless until the wrangler goes out and wrangles him and brings him in and runs him around and puts a saddle on him and breaks him so that a rider can ride him or that a car can be pulled behind him and then he becomes useful. It's power under control. Power under control. It's the lion tamed. A lion, massive, powerful, useless, and, and, and is offensive and dangerous unless he comes to a place of brokenness under the commands of his master. You see? A lowly heart, a mind of humility, leads to an outward manifestation of meekness. Meekness. Jesus was meek. Moses was meek. Amen? God of glory became a human being, was lowly in heart, meek. Jesus at the beginning and the end of his ministry, Jesus was meek, right? But you know what he did to start his earthly ministry and to end it right before the cross? You know what he did? He went into the temple where the Pharisees and the money changers were and all of the people from Israel were coming to worship God to lay their sacrifice on the altar. And they had these little animals that were growing up and you become attached to them, right? And you come in and you're willing to lay it down on the altar and they would look at it and go, oh, it's flawed. It's not good enough to get an altar. But lo and behold, we have a very good deal for you today. And there's some over here that are not flawed. And, you know, for the little exchange of the money, we can give you something that God will honor and accept. Right? Jesus walks in. Meek and humble Jesus. He 
went and made a whip of cords. And he went and chased out the, the, the animals, turned the tables upside down of the money changers. Is that meat? That's power under control. Power under control. Because I'll tell you, when Jesus was reviled personally, personal attack, spit on, beaten, whipped, he did not revile in return. But I'll tell you this, check it out. When his father in heaven was misrepresented by the people that were supposed to be proper representatives of him, and God worshippers coming to seek God and glorify God through sacri the sacrificial system, they were being misled by the people that were supposed to be representing God. Jesus turned the place upside down. Upside down. So the question for us today is do you get more jolted, you get more upset, you get more uh, outbursts of whatever when you're offended or when God is offended? Does God being misrepresented affect you with more rage than you being offended, but you being flipped off on the freeway? Come on now. We live in Southern California. Does getting flipped off make you so outraged that you chase him down? Before God broke me, then your pastor used to be like that. He's an idiot. God broke me. He's going to work in me. I have yet to arrive, I'll tell you that much. But I'll tell you one thing that makes me majorly upset is when God's word is not taught correctly. When man attempts to use the word of God for selfish gain in a bunch of this crazy teaching on TV fires me up and makes me indignant, man. When the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of breaking the law by healing someone on the Sabbath, you know what he did? Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Verse five. And when he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched his withered hand out. As he stretched out, it was healed, made whole. So Jesus looked at him with anger. Jesus turned the temple upside down. He turned the place upside down to begin his ministry and then to end his ministry before he went to the cross to fulfill his ministry. So what upsets you? Meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. And what upsets you more? Think about it. Is it having a revengeful heart for someone who's wronged you personally? Or is it when God is misrepresented, that fires me up? That's called righteous indignation. Righteous indignation. There's two kids who sat in church, and they heard a message on righteous indignation, and one kid says to the other, what's righteous indignation? And the other kid responds to him, he says, I don't know, but I think it's when you get real mad and you don't cuss. <laughs> Jesus had righteous indignation. Paul had righteous indignation. The apostles had righteous indignation. The battles that they fought were against false doctrine, false Christ, false messages. What upsets you? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, and I quote, To be meek means that you have finished with yourself altogether. To be meek means that you have finished with yourself altogether. William Sacker, a 17th century British minister, said this, He that would be angry and not sin must be angry at nothing but sin. The Bible says be angry and do not sin. Did you know that? You can be angry and not sin. 
Most of us are angry and then we fall into sin, right? That's been the pattern, for me anyway. What I'm trying to do is submit myself in humility so that the meekness of Christ is manifested through my life and the things that in irritate me is when God is misrepresented through the people that are supposed to be God's people, God's leaders. Amen? So let's try to have a change of thought. Begin in humility, it leads to meekness, which leads to the next characteristic, number three, long-suffering. It needs to be long-tempered. Long-tempered. It needs to be patient. To be patient means to suffer what? Long. <laughs> Pray for patience before, right? And you realize that there's a bunch of irritating people in your life all of a sudden. Right? It's endurance. The ability to endure discomfort. The ability to endure a place that God may have set you that's not totally comfortable, that there could be uh, offenses, that there could be um, persecution. It's being content with where God has you today. Being content. You know, the writer of Hebrews urged the people, the recipients of the letter of the Hebrews, most of them were at this place of intellectual understanding of who Christ was, what he had done. They embraced him as Christ intellectually, but they came up, like I said last week, just to the line of belief. Intellectually, never submitting to his lordship, never wholeheartedly giving their lives to him, and they fell right back into legalism, you see. And what he said was, look, he said, to these uncommitted Jews, he said, if you follow the example of the persevering saints of old, that you would be able to obtain salvation and then the full assurance of that salvation. So to these Jews, he gave an example of the hero of their lineage, which was who? The hero of, of Israel was who? Father Abraham, right? So he gives them as an example. And in Hebrews chapter 6, Verse 12, he said this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, then he obtained the promise. What was the promise? Isaac. He was old in age, and his wife was barren, unable to have children. So he used Abraham as this example of someone who endured, someone who patiently endured. The promises of God. What's God promised you that he's yet to visibly fulfill in your life? Are you becoming irritated? Are you shaking your fist at God? Are you wagging your head at God? Are you full of doubt? Because doubt for the believer is sin. It's unbelief is sin. We come here to get built up in the faith, to trust and abide in Him. And by walking out that faith and obedience, you know what it does to your faith? It multiplies it. You resist, shake your fist at God, you'll hear nothing but the lies of the devil, and you'll have no patience with what God has for you. You'll have no patience with other people, because you, there's nothing meek about you, and it goes back to a lack of humility within, you see? It's a progression we're working on here. Romans 4.20 uses Abraham as an example. He said, Abraham, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, of which... Give glory to who? God. God's glorified when you endure in circumstances. God's glorified also when you endure with people. People. 
Remember Noah? Noah spent 120 years building a boat. Because God said he was about to do things that were unseen. He was about to do something that was unseen, was bring judgment upon the earth. And another thing that had never been seen was it never rained out. Build a boat because it's going to rain, it's going to flood. I'm going to wipe the world out, but I'm going to save you, your wife, your sons, and their wives. And I'm going to replenish the whole earth through you. He endured. Hebrews 11.7, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, he prepared an ark. Moses is another one used as an example. Hebrews 11.25, Moses, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin, what did he do? He left the comforts of Egypt to lead God's people out of Egypt. Only for the pleasures of 40 years in the wilderness. It's hot out today, isn't it? Think about being in a desert for 40 years and leaving a bunch of disgruntled complainers around. And think about it. He endured with circumstances and with complainers, with whiners, the Israelites. What a guy. What a guy. Long-suffering is never bailing out. It's never losing control. Never losing control, never bailing out. James 5.10, check this out. 5.10 of James. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Imagine Jeremiah. God calls Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah, I want you to preach to my people for 40 years. And by the way, no one's going to convert. Think about it. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be tied up. You're going to be dipped into a pit of the grossest thing you can imagine. But I want you to preach in my name. And Isaiah, called Isaiah. Isaiah, I'm calling you. You remember the story of Isaiah? I'm calling you. But as you preach, the nation of Israel is only going to fall deeper and deeper into sin and rebellion. We're called to see them as an example of enduring, of long-suffering, in circumstances. Ordained by, guess who? God himself. God himself. What's he want to teach in your life? What is he trying to teach you right now? This word means patience with people just as it does with patience with circumstances. Check this out. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. You need to take this real personally. Because this is your role as the body. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Now we exhort you brethren to warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. That's how the body is supposed to treat each other, guys. I tell you, I was so blessed this week. We had someone in the body that was discouraged. And I called up a few guys to just go spend a little time with someone. And before I knew it, it was like covering almost every day of the week. That blessed me. I, I went to visit this brother who I love, and there was three brothers already there by the time I got there. That's the functioning of the body. Effectively ministering, getting your eyes off of yourself, coming out of your little crybaby place if you're in one, and yielding in humility to the authority of God of heaven. Because you're saved by grace, justified, sanctified, one day you will be glorified. Because of that, walk worthy. And it begins with humility. Humility of the mind. 
who you are. It says, warn those who are unruly. People get out of line within the body, you need to warn them to get back in line. You see? It's not just always the pastor's job, it's the body's job. The faint-hearted, comfort the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted are those who walk in fear, they walk in doubt. Comfort them with what? Not your ideas. You got to know the Word of God because you don't want to comfort them with your ideas, amen? You lead them back to the, to the everlasting Word of God. Uphold the weak. This is the spiritually and morally weak. They keep falling in weakness. There's a couple people we haven't seen for quite a few weeks here in church. And I know that some of you others are aware of that. You need to go visit these people. I can't visit everybody, but we can together, can't we? We can together. Because some people just keep falling into the same moral depravity, the same weakness of faith and so on. We've got to come alongside of them and pull them back out. You, you got it? Patience, forgiveness, goodness, and accountability to each other, he says. Also used to accept anything from God. That's what long-suffering is. I want to read a story about the great missionary, Matt, David Livingston. Dr. David Livingston studied medicine and theology at the University of Glasgow. Because I'm telling you something. When you have these characteristics in your life, evangelism takes on a whole other level of power. You know, we think of evangelism today as events, methods. Nowadays, it's looked at as a rock concert. Let's do a rock concert and get a bunch of Christian people together and, you know, get them to come forward or something. Okay, that's all great in certain places. True evangelism comes from you and me individually in and through everyday life. That's the power of evangelism. And listen to the power of Dr. David Livingston. Mid-1800s, studied uh, medicine and theology at the University of Glasgow, became a missionary to Africa. He was attacked and named by a lion. His home was destroyed during the Boer War. And his wife passed away while he was on the field. For three years, the missions board or whatever had no word from David Livingston. No word at all. So this Royal Geographical Society sent out this little team to go look for Dr. David Livingston. One of which was Henry Morton Stanley, a non-believer. Henry Morton Stanley finally gets down here, finally sees and understands that he's still alive, and he walked up to him and he said, what? Dr. Livingston, I presume. Dr. Livingston looked up and he says, with a kind smile, yes, sir, lift his cap slightly. And for a number of months, Stanley stood by his side and observed Dr. David Livingston do his ministry with these pagan Africans. In the biography, it says this. During the time that Stanley was beside, beside him, he said, Livingston never spoke about spiritual things. He was busy speaking spiritual things and doing what he was doing with the Africans. And then over the months, says this, Livingston's habits were beyond my comprehension. The most amazing thing was his patience and sympathy with those pagan Africans. Stanley went on later to write in his journal, and he said this, and I quote, When I saw that unwearied patience, that unflagging zeal, these enlightened sons of Africa, I became a Christian at his side, though he never spoke one word to me. End quote. Never spoke a word. 
It was because of the characteristics that we're studying today of the believer who walks in a worthy manner of everything that Christ has done for you on your behalf, speaks volumes to the people around you. He became a believer by watching, hearing, seeing, and listening to the gospel that was being presented and lived out to those pagan Africans. Dr. David Livingston was found years later, dead, kneeling at his bedside, and those Africans came, cut out his heart, buried it in Africa, and sent his body back to London. Come on now, somebody. That progresses us towards forbearance. Forbearing with one another. For, this is forbearing love. Forbearance means to hold oneself up against. It means to put up with something or someone. All of these are works of grace. Are you seeing this? All of these things are works, works of grace by God to you. You are able to live out a humble life within that leads to a meek outward life that leads to one in which you're able to suffer long with people, suffer long with circumstances, and when you're able to do that, you are able to bear with one another. Forbearing love. First Corinthians 13.4 Love suffers long and is what? Kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. The product of humility in this kind of love, it means, check this out, it means to suppress with silence. Check it out. It means to suppress with silence. Here's the idea. 1 Peter 4.8 And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10.12 Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. This is like throwing a veil or a blanket over something. It covers it up. This type of love covers up these type of things. You know, the, the Bible speaks, we have basically one word for love in the English language, basically, right? You love your car, you love your wife, you love your kids, you love your dog. Right? There's a lot of different words in Greek for love, but I'm going to share three of them that you're probably familiar with. One of them is an eros love. Eros. And it's a love that takes. It's a one-way love. It just takes, takes, takes. It's that lustful desire. <clears throat> when that lusts for a woman, that's just a love that takes. When a woman lusts for a man, it's a lust that takes. When you have someone in your life who they're trying to buy your friendship, they'll buy you anything under the sun, moon, and stars just to keep close to you because they want some friendship, but you can care less about them, but you'll let them love you. You'll just take, 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 take. Eros love, a love that takes. Phileo love is a two-way love. It's a love that gives and takes. You have close friends in your life. You help them. They help you. You give to them. They give to you. They give time. They give effort. They may give money, whatever. It's a two-way love. Agape love, you have a, a love that takes, you have a love that give and takes, and then you have a completely selfish giving love, and that's agape love. What I get means nothing. That's God's love, imparted to you, of which you're able to love others with, you see. Jesus said in Matthew 5.43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor 
hate your enemy, be back, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. This is loving the unlovable. Loving the difficult. You know what? That is hard. If you want to do that in your own strength, you will fail. Amen? Come on. Oh, I can't stand it when I have to love someone that's unlovable and I do it in my own strength. It's miserable. It's miserable. It's when I submit myself in humility to what Christ has done, you just become more outwardly meek. And you are able to suffer longer with people. And you're able to forbear with people. This is a love of forbearance. This is a grace of forbearance. Forbearing love, you see? And then, when all these things are in place, we'll be able to reach the goal. And you know what it is? Unity. Unity. Oneness. Verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of what? Peace. Endeavor means to use speed. To make a, to make a earnest effort. To endeavor. You know what it means, guys? It means you have to work at it. We gotta work at it, don't we? Endeavor means to work at it. You know, I could tell you how many, I can tell you numerous couples have come to me that were gonna get married, and they're just, uh, puppy love all the way, right? They're holding hands every chance they get, they just wanna sit next to each other, and they go, we wanna get married, and I said, well, neither one of you have a job. Yeah, but we live in a box. It's just, we love each other so much, it's just, we just need to be together. Right? Foolish, blind, love. Yeah, they may love each other, but I'll tell you what, the counsel they need is to say, look, you may have all these blissful little feelings of we can live anywhere, anyhow together, but when real life sets in, let me tell you what, and irritations of life come, you're going to have to learn how to love one another through it, because the feelings will die like that. Amen? Come on for you who've been married a while. You work at loving one another, correct? It takes work. The feelings will fade. In the box, down by the railroad tracks, will not be comfortable for too long. And you will begin to irritate one another. That's the idea. We're simply called to work at it because we can. But it begins with the inward attitude, you see. It's not what you do, it's who you are in Christ. You can do all you want and it could be all outward, all external, it could be and can be all phony. Where is my heart in light of what God's done for me? That's where it begins. Now, once we begin to endeavor with one another, here's the warning. As soon as you think you're there, the devil will come and attack to break apart what he has already established. Because notice, what are we called to do with this unity? Look at it. Verse 3, endeavoring to what? To keep. God has already established it in Christ. He's already established the unity. He's already established the concept of oneness. And that's where we're to be here. We're called to keep it. We're called to keep it. And it begins with a mindset of humility, brothers and sisters. Okay? First Corinthians 12, 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Okay, just so you know, this does not mean we're called to pursue some ecumenical movement. Okay? Ecumenism, or the ecumenical movement, is let's just lay aside all doctrine and just love Jesus. Okay? 
Very important. Now, we do have a lot of different denominations and things of that nature, and I believe that if most Christians were right with God, the Holy Spirit, the doctrines would be purified. And people would see what they really say, instead of all this division. Okay? We don't lay aside doctrine just to love one another, because you can have some heretic at the door, by the way. You can have a heretic at the door, and you don't agree on heresy. You see? Very important. Doctrine, you guys, unites. But it does another thing at the same time. It divides. The doctrine of the Pharisees, did it unite Jesus and the Pharisees? No, it divided. The doctrine of the Old Testament saints, the Isaiahs and the Jeremiahs, did it unite or did it separate? It separated. The apostles and the false apostles, their doctrines didn't unite. Very unfortunate, but remember, the devil appears as an angel of what? Light. A lot of people think that he's got this swastika, you know, tattooed in his forehead, and some guy laying in the gutter in a pile of vomit that, oh, that's the work of the devil. That's not appealing to most human beings, right? But, oh, some type of spirituality, right? Some type of, well, that's kind of biblical. There might be a little bit of light that leads to a whole lot of lies, you see. couple quotes. Great saints have always been dogmatic. A.W. Tozer. There can be no spiritual health without doctrinal knowledge. J.I. Packer. We cannot have the benefits of Christianity if we shed its doctrines. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The truth, the truth is, no preacher ever had any strong power that was not the preaching of doctrine. Philip Brooks. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. The Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 4.3, contend earnestly for the faith. Jude, the brother of James, Jude, verse 3. We don't lay aside doctrine. We are called to love as one. There are certain things that we can agree to disagree with, agree to disagree on, right? But I'll tell you what, there's certain doctrines that divide. Jesus, the Christ, is God in the flesh. Jesus did die on the cross. Jesus did raise from the dead. Jesus fully paid and atoned for the sins of man on the cross. Nothing to be added to it. If anyone says that something has to be added to it, it's heresy. You divide over that. Amen? That's where cults are birthed. Very important. And you know what? Here's another thing. Great testimony of some guys I was spending time with yesterday. There's some guys I know that they utilized their time very wisely, and they were out actually playing golf with some other guys who were very weak in their doctrine, very passive in their doctrine, very seeker-friendly in their doctrine. And because the time that these men are spending with these other guys, their whole mindset is being changed and transformed into a more biblical form of doctrine. Because you have guys that are rooted and grounded in truth, seeing from an eternal perspective, pouring into the guys that God has in their life, you see. Yet it all leads to the bond of peace. And this bond of peace refers to a belt. We're all tied together as one, glorifying God, because we want to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling that begins with an inward humility, leads to an outward meekness, which leads to long-suffering, enduring with one another, so that we can be one. Amen? Okay, we're going to close, because I'm only halfway through. We'll get to the seven ones next week, okay?
But think about it. Everything that defines our faith, everything that defines our faith, brothers and sisters, is one. We serve one God, which we'll see next week. One faith, one baptism, we are one. One Lord. Every sin, the root thereof, you guys, check it out. The root of every sin is pride. It's pride. Allow God this week to shine the light on the motives of your heart, your very thinking, and submit those areas of pride to Him, and allow Him to work in you a mindset and a heart of humility. And you will and won't be able to help but live as a meek, submitted, yielded servant of God. And for those of you who don't believe and you've yet to come to faith in Christ, the only thing that's keeping you from submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ is pride. Pride is the first sin, and pride is the last sin that will send people to hell. And if you hold on to your pride, Jesus said, unless you become as a little child and believe, you will by no means see the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit means to look at yourself as being morally bankrupt, that you have nothing to offer God but to receive as a beggar his gift of grace. That's where salvation is birthed.